some kind of regular giving. Okay, um, I'm really excited. We're starting a new preaching series today, uh, which will take us through October and November, take us up to Christmas. Um, and we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is probably Jesus' best known and least understood teachings in all of Scripture. And the series is called Flipped. And in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, in those three chapters, Jesus flips everything about culture, about the way of the world, about what society tells us. He flips it all on its head. And Jesus offers us this brand new outline of what it means to be a Christian. It's incredibly practical. I'd encourage you to read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It describes a Christian, how a Christian is to be set apart, how a Christian is to be different. And God's people have always been different. If you read through Scripture, God's people have always been different. The Israelites struggled to be different. They struggled to be holy. They struggled to be set apart. That's most of uh, their ups and downs in the Old Testament. The Israelites struggling to be different. But the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us what being different looks like as a Christian. And over these three chapters, Jesus says, this is it. This is what a Christian looks like. Radical, upside down, flipped everything that you know on its head. The Sermon on the Mount is really like a Christian counterculture. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus himself lived it and modeled it. What we're reading in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus lived in his life. Jesus showed mercy. He made peace with his enemies. He acted like salt. He was a shining light in the darkness. He was devoted to extending the kingdom of God. He loved and served those who persecuted him. Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount in the flesh. Jesus is like the film version, and Sermon on the Mount is like the script. We watch Jesus and we see what it looks like. You know, when you a teacher, I used to be a teacher, the kind of old teacher adage is you can tell people but it's far better if you show them. You're doing an experiment or something. You can tell someone about an experiment, but when you do an experiment and you show someone an experiment, that's how you learn. And it's like Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount and then showing us in his life. Now, something really important. As you read and study the Sermon on the Mount over the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking at it on a Sunday, You're going to read some of it and think, this is unobtainable. This is impossible. How can I do this? Well, it is, first of all, unobtainable, first of all, unless you become a Christian. And even if you are a Christian, it is only obtainable through the supernatural infilling of the Holy Spirit, who is our helper. So important you understand that. For anybody walking down the street who's not a Christian, who reads the Sermon on the Mount, 
impossible. A Christian reading the Sermon on the Mount only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside of us. Right, let's just read the first couple of verses. We're in Matthew's Gospel, starting at verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach. Now, just before we read the first bit of the Beatitudes, which is where we're going to study today, you just need to understand something here. And what we've already read, that first verse. Jesus had just been baptized. He'd come out of his temptations with the devil. He'd been preaching. He'd been healing people. And in verse 1, he goes up a mountain. Now, the parallel here is Moses. And Moses in the Old Testament going up the mountain where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Because what Jesus is doing here is giving us a new law, a new way of living. This is the new Sinai. Jesus is the better, perfect Moses. This is a new way of living. Now, Old Testament Ten Commandments had two purposes. Number one, it was to show non-Christians that they cannot please God by themselves. The Ten Commandments are an impossible ten standards to live by. So the first purpose of the law, the Ten Commandments, is to point people to Jesus. The second purpose of the Ten Commandments is to show believers how to live. Show them how we are to live our lives as Christians. A Puritan writer said this, the law sends us to Christ to be justified and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. So I want to help you here. When you read the Sermon on the Mount and you get driven to despair and you think this is unattainable, then just remember this. It's not about achieving all that you read. It's about Jesus on the cross having saved us and doing for us what we could not do. And then it's about Jesus telling us how to live our lives and knowing that through the Holy Spirit, we can do that. So with that context, we're going to look at the first four Beatitudes. Okay, the first four of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read them from verse 2 to 6. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, starting in verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. So we're going to look today at the first four of the eight qualities for Christian people to live by, the Beatitudes. 
They're famous. They're beautiful piece of prose. And they are for all of us how to live as Christians. Now, the word blessed in Greek is marakarius. And it basically means happy. But not a kind of happy, clappy happy. It's a deeper kind of holy happy. And, and there's an element to it of congratulations. There's an element in the Greek which is so much more multifaceted than the English. Whereas when you're blessed, it's like, oh, congratulations, you're blessed. You've been blessed by something that you haven't done. There's a responsibility upon you, but there's a privilege and a blessing that comes with it. And one other important thing just to say about blessed are is that there's a now and a not yet to these blessings. There's a present and there's also a future fulfillment. We can enjoy the first fruits now and then the full harvest is yet to come. Okay, we're going to look at these four Beatitudes very quickly, one by one. But do you know what? I'm going to do something I don't often do in the middle of this preach. I'm going to say a very short prayer. Because my prayer is that your mindset is flipped as we go through these four Beatitudes. Father God, I pray, help me with my words. And Holy Spirit, would you be working in our hearts to really flip our mindset? Would we see things differently as we look at scripture, as we look at your teachings, Jesus? Would you flip on helpful truths, on helpful thoughts, and would you bring the truth that comes through these Beatitudes? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, number one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the poor in the Old Testament uh, was really those who had great material need. So one who was afflicted, one who was without resources, without food, without shelter, unable to help themselves. The poor in the Old Testament was someone who needed help from another. They were empty-handed and brought nothing to the table. So poor in spirit is acknowledging our spiritual poverty is acknowledging not what we materially may or may not have. It's acknowledging before God that we are deserving of nothing and that we have fallen short of the glory of God. I want you to think of it like this. The entrance card to the kingdom of God says, I have nothing. It is the exact opposite to what we might think or we might have been told. And all over the earth, God looks for the poor in spirit. All over this earth, God looks for those who realize that they are weak, that they don't offer anything, that they actually are hopeless, that they are not sorted and don't have it all together. Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. Yes, that's those who are in material poverty. But Jesus was also talking about those who knew that they had a spiritual poverty. They brought nothing to the table. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift which Jesus accomplished on the cross. 
We're to have the humility to realize that, to accept it like a child. A famous piece of, of old prose said this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee I dress, hopeless look to thee for grace. You need to flip this in your mind. It's about poor, not rich. It's about those who are feeble, not mighty. It's about those who don't have rather than those who have it all. It's about understanding that we are sinners and not about being religious and pious. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty before God. And when we do that, we receive the kingdom of God. It's interesting that this is the first of the Beatitudes, the first of the eight. It's interesting because it's the starting point. Think of it as the first rung on the ladder. Or think of it as the foundation on which to build your house. God is saying, look, congratulations. You're blessed if you know that you are broken. Congratulations. Blessing is yours if you realize that you haven't got it all together. If you understand that, if you realize that, then you have God's approval. Everything is yours. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn. Now, Jesus is not specifically talking here about those who are mourning the loss of loved ones. What he's talking about, and the Greek word here is pentheo, and it means a sorrow of heart. It's basically an extension of our brokenness. It is mourning our sin and failing. It is having a sorrow about what we got wrong. It's ha having a sorrow and repenting, not just in action, but with a sense of emotion. There's a biblical word called repentance. Repentance means that if we're going in one direction away from God, when we repent, we turn and go in the opposite direction. We have a change of mind. We have a change of action. That's a biblical word, repentance. We turn to God. But what he's talking about here, blessed are those who mourn, is not just the turning of repentance, which is beautiful and wonderful, but in that there's an emotion of realizing the grief and the loss and the sorrow of the old way in which you were living. That, that there was something that was deeply wrong and painful about your sin. And it's like the second stage of spiritual blessing. Stage one, acknowledge that you are spiritually poor and broken. Second stage, grieve and mourn over that. Again, perhaps the best word is contrition for our actions, feeling sorry and having a sense of contrition for what we did which was wrong. You see, I think that it is important to say that there are such things as Christian tears. It's not all joy 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 happy 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 jesus wept over the sins of others ezra when he gathered god's people together in the old testament prayed and wept over the sins of god's people in ezra chapter 10. paul in romans 
realized that he was a wretch and wrestled with the grief of what he had previously done in his life. And I think sometimes evangelical Christians make much of grace. Amen. We've been saved. Amen. Jesus has done it all. I'm one of the first to do that. I love the grace of God that Jesus has done it all on the cross. But sometimes in doing that, we can make light of sin. And you see, there's this, this is sweet spot that we're to find. You see, when we understand the depth and the depravity of our sin and falling short of the glory of God and the mess of our lives, when we understand that mess, when we grieve and face sorrow over what we have done wrong, then the grace of God is sweet. It's so, so sweet. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. The saved a wretch like me. It's in the understanding of where you have come from and been rescued from. That grace is so sweet and beautiful and pure. You know, the Old Testament prophets prophesied that Jesus, Messiah, would be a comforter. That he would bind up the broken hearted. Simeon, in the Christmas story, in uh, Luke chapter 2, he was waiting for the comforter of Israel, which was Jesus. So can you see it? Blessed are those who mourn, those who realize they've messed up, those who feel that sorrow, but you've been waiting for someone who will come and bring comfort and will come and rescue you and will come and bring the sweetness of his grace, and that is Jesus. Jesus comforts those who mourn. Jesus pours oil on our wounds and our pain and our hurt from life. Where people have hurt us, where we've hurt others, where we have fallen short of the glory of God, where we mourn our sin, Jesus brings comfort. He pours oil on our wounds and on our pain. And here, again, there is a now and a not yet. There is a now of God's comfort and his closeness and his strength and his farming oil. And then there is a one day to come in final glory when there will be no more tears and no more heartache and no more sorrow. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the broken, the weak, the hopeless. Blessed are those who mourn, because when we mourn, Jesus comforts. And Jesus comes close, and we feel the sweetness of Jesus. Third, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does that word meek mean? It's a funny word. I think, for me, the easiest way to understand it is what it is not. The opposite of meek. The opposite of meek is pride and arrogance, and self-righteousness. Meek is the opposite of what the world applauds. It's the opposite of power and wealth and glory. Again, the Greek word talks about gentle and humble and courteous. I think one of the most helpful definitions I found this week studying was that meekness is an understanding of how you see yourself in front of God and in front of fellow man. 
And I think the fellow man bit is the bit that most of us struggle with. We know we've got nothing to boast about with God. We know we haven't. But we like to think of ourselves as pretty good compared to rest of the population or some people that we know or some people that we've read about on TV. The Beatitudes flow like this. You know, the first rung of the ladder. See that you are sinful. See and mourn your, your brokenness. Know and see that. Then there's a kind of like a feeling of that, a grieving of that. And then there is a, well, this then is how I behave. I then act like this because I know that I am not better than others. And I know where my place is and how God sees me. Why do we think of ourselves more better than others? Why do we like to see ourselves more better than others? I think it's because we like to have some kind of status. We like to feel that we have a position above other people. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's flipping this on his head. He's flipping it and saying, no, it's not about having a position above anyone else. Jesus demonstrated being meek in his life better than anyone else. Jesus put others above himself. There was nothing, the Bible says, about Jesus' appearance or charisma that was particularly amazing. Nothing. His heart is described once in the Gospels as gentle and lowly. And in other words, meek. His countenance was meek. And anyone could approach him. Anyone could approach Jesus from lepers to prostitutes to tax collectors. Anyone could approach him. And what does it say if we are to follow the example of Jesus? It says that the meek shall inherit the earth. If we follow Jesus' example, then our spiritual inheritance is in Christ. And that spiritual inheritance is the whole of the earth. This is upside down thinking. This is flipping things on its head. The meek is the least and the humble. And in that, there is again a now and a not yet. There's a future tense where the meek, we will all reign with Christ. But there's a now, there's a now where the meek will have Christ's inheritance. Incredibly, again, flipping everything on its head, again, the opposite of what the world or culture tells us. Actually, when we put the needs of others before our own, when we act that we are nothing compared to others, Jesus sees that and he raises us up. Jesus sees that and he works in our life. It's the opposite of what we would think. We would think I need to fight my corner. We would think I need to push down others and climb to the top. But Jesus says, no. Blessed are the meek, those who understand their standing. They understand how they stand up before God, but before man. They understand that they know better than anyone else. They put the needs of others in front of their own. They are approachable to anyone and everyone. And as they do that, then Jesus works in your life then Jesus says you will inherit the earth. You will see things happen because the meek shall inherit the earth because it's the upside down way of the kingdom. Fourth and final 
beatitude for today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, I want to say something really important here. Christians are to be ambitious people. Now, not materially, particularly, there is nothing wrong. There's a place for some of that. But I'm talking about spiritual. Christians are to be ambitious spiritually. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. There's to be, a, I'm ambitiously seeking God. I'm hungering and thirsting for more. My appetite for the things of God is growing. My thirst for the things of God is growing. I want more, 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 more. Now, if we look at righteousness, I think there's three areas of righteousness. We want to go deeper in the area of understanding the legal righteousness that Jesus justified on the cross. And I think sometimes we can be relatively good at that. We will study scripture. We will listen to a podcast. We will, we will talk with friends and we will try and go deeper and hunger and thirst more after the theological things of God, the, the justification of knowing our position in Christ. The second area of, of righteousness, again, I think sometimes we're pretty good at, at delving into. The moral righteousness of how we are to live, how our character, how our conduct is to be affected by God's word. Again, we can do that together in community groups. We can do that together with one another. We can help one another and challenge one another. And I think we're okay. We all need to be better. We all need to be more ambitious in this area. But we can be okay in going, okay, God, I want to hunger and thirst for more of the legal, theological understanding of your righteousness. And for my life to have greater sense of moral righteousness and understanding of how my character and conduct is to be. But there's a third area of righteousness that isn't just, just private and personal. There's a third area, which is basically social righteousness. Because I believe as Christians and God's people, we are to seek liberation from opposition. We are to seek justice for the oppressed. We are to seek equality for all people. We are to seek and eradicate racism. We are to seek and see that all people are treated equally. We are to be a blessing to all of community, all of the community around us. And I think that hunger is never to be satisfied. And I think sometimes Christians can say, oh, I'll do my bit for the community or the oppressed or those who are suffering and then, oh, my hunger is satisfied or I'm not going to do anything else. But no, we are to eat and hunger again, drink and thirst again. We should be a thirst within us as believers and within the church to go after the justice of God. And I think in this season, more than ever, the church, both individually, each one of you, and corporately, is to be a place that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. For the, th those who have no voice to speak up. For the oppressed. For those who are marginalized. We are not to be satisfied by doing a little bit. But we are to, to say and flip our mindset and say, what I am about as a Christian, what I'm about as a believer is seeing the justice and the righteousness of God 
go into this world and make a difference and set people free. It's what Jesus came to do, to set the captives free. We are to hunger and thirst after that righteousness. To hunger and thirst to see captives set free. Okay, hopefully I've given you a lot to think about. Hopefully I've flipped a few mindsets. Because this first four Beatitudes, which are basically about our relationship with God. The next four, next week we'll look at the next four. And they're about our relationship with others. But these first four are really about our relationship with God and how that then flows into others. You are blessed as a Christian. Blessed are you if you know that you are broken and you are poor spiritually. Blessed are you if you feel the weight of your sin. If you mourn your sin because the sweetness of God's grace and forgiveness is all the more beautiful. Blessed are you if you understand your standing in front of God and fellow man. And blessed are you if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, after setting others free, after seeing injustice go and people said here's where i want to finish it the band are going to come up in a minute and we're going to worship and we're going to wait on god actually at the end because here's where i want to leave it to do this to do what i have talked about today to flip the mindset and to live in that space we all need the Holy Spirit. It's only the Holy Spirit who makes this possible to live in this way. Only the Holy Spirit makes it possible. So what I'm going to do in a minute, we're going to stand, we're going to come and worship. We're going to sing a beautiful song that really reflects much of what I've talked about today. And we're going to acknowledge and we're going to worship. And then I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to just come upon us and help us this week to live the example of Jesus that he gives in Matthew 5 and he lived in his life. It will flip your mindset. It will challenge your very core of your being. But it's what Jesus called us to, to be to be set apart, to be God's people. Jonathan, do you want to come up? Nina, Adama, can we all stand? I'm just going to pray for us, then we're going to worship, and then I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit to just meet with us and touch us and bless us as we go into our week. Let me pray, and then guys, just,